Alliance of Women Filmmakers, this is Visionary Voices, behind-the-scenes conversations with groundbreaking women and non-binary filmmakers from around the world. I'm Diana Means. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Today, we are joined by filmmaker Brooke Siebel to talk about the Sundance award-winning film, Framing Agnes, as well as her latest comedy short, Grandma Bruce. Brooke, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here and having this conversation with you. We're going to start off by having you tell us about your background as a filmmaker, you know, where you're from and when you first started writing and producing. Well, um, so I'm from Tucson, Arizona originally, and I sort of, I think maybe like everyone have a long journey into filmmaking, but actually when I was a young kid, I got into a really terrible skiing accident and I was bedridden for about a year. And my dad thankfully would go to Blockbuster and just rent me everything that was available. So I saw all kinds of movies, including those that were probably inappropriate for a 12 year old kid, but I really fell in love with filmmaking. I fell in love with just the escape of storytelling more than anything. You know, I was able to, at that age, sort of recognize like the way that different films made me feel, but I, I I didn't understand anything about what it took to make a film or what it meant to be a director. I think the only thing that I did understand is that all the directors I had ever heard of were men. And so it wasn't until I uh, got into college and I studied at Brown, which had a, a strong emphasis on experimental film. But for me, it was like right around that time, it was when, um, there were actually a few films that came out. One of my favorite films, especially at that time, was Boys Don't Cry. It really had a major impact on me. And it was the first film that I acknowledged or understood that was directed by a woman. And that was when, you know, it kind of like opened the doors of like, well, wait, if a woman can direct, what does it even mean to direct? What did she do? What, you know, what can I do? Can I make a film? And so that was sort of the start of like, oh, well, maybe this is actually something that I could pursue for myself instead of just an escape when I'm sick or not feeling well. And so it was really in college that I started to write films, make little experimental shorts. Like I said, Brown was very experimental. So it was all about just like giving you a camera, letting you make your own mistakes and sort of learning from that. And as I kind of pursued that path, I, you know, the films that I fell in love with when I was a kid and as an adult were all narrative based. And so that was something that I was always really interested in. Um, After uh, college, I moved out to San Francisco where documentary is sort of the, it's sort of the Hollywood of documentary film. And I I sort of fell into that world and fell in love with documentary as well. Um, So I made my first feature documentary, which was called Red Without Blue, right out of college with a couple, I co-directed it with two other people, both of whom are still friends and I still work with. And um, so that was my first foray into, you know, making a feature. And loved it. I mean, that was, yeah, it was just so rewarding and fulfilling. And I loved getting to incorporate some experimental filmmaking into that doc. But after I finished that doc, kind of returned, you know, went back to like the reasons why I fell in love with filmmaking in the first place, which was really narrative films and and that mode of storytelling. And so I went back to film school um, and studied at Columbia and I got my my MFA in writing and directing. And, uh, you know, and I've been doing it ever since I love all forms of filmmaking. So I still really do make a lot of doc work, make a lot of narrative work, kind of do whatever the story dictates, like what sort of container does this story call for? And that's, that's what I love doing. 
So I love having the, the flexibility around it and just different modes of storytelling. It all appeals to me. Now, speaking of different modes of storytelling, you know, Framing Agnes was a documentary and then you from there went to a short comedy, The Grandma Bruce. Uh, tell us a little about Framing Agnes, your journey with the film, and if you went to Sundance, just your overall Sundance experience. Yeah, well, every part of that question is, is really a unique experience, Framing Agnes. The director of that film um, is a good friend, Chase Joint. We've been collaborating for 15 years now. This is like our fifth film together. Um, And so I co-produced it and I also edited it. And um, we started that film with a short a handful of years ago. I guess it was now like five years ago that premiered at Tribeca. And it's an experimental, um, it's sort of a hybrid between doc and narrative filmmaking because within the film, we have a cast of trans actors who reenact transcripts from the first gender clinic at UCLA in the mid-century. And then they also, all of these trans actors, reflect on their own experiences of what it means to be trans in this present moment. So it sort of is, you know, both narrative and doc. And um, the reason why I love working with Chase is, you know, there's a lot of freedom to experiment between those forms and really find you know, we say about that film, the structure itself is trans. It's not any one thing. It's sort of, you know, this fluid thing. And, you know, really just trying to create something that creates an emotional response in the viewer and, you know, allows them into a world and maybe just a thought process that they hadn't considered before. The trans people in that film are so brilliant and like revolutionary and just sort of eye-opening perspective. And so just hearing them talk and hearing their reflections on life in the world is illuminating. And so that film really sort of allows us like the freedom to kind of dance between narrative and doc. And so from that short, uh, Chase was able to get the funding and we made the feature version of it. And that premiered at Sundance and won the audience award and the innovator award in the next section, which is where we premiered. The unfortunate thing was that Sundance, this was last year and Sundance was canceled, um, you know, a few weeks before the festival. So a little bit, we were deprived of you know, the glory of the experience of getting to screen it at the Egyptian, like we had hoped. But I did still go to Park City and I skied and I watched the link to the movie in the mountains, the way it was meant to be seen. And I had the time of my life. It was great. Um, And then we, you know, were just truly elated and thrilled that it was uh, received in the way that it was, that it was given those awards. And then we just had our theatrical release in early December and the movie made uh, the New Yorker's best movies of 2022 list. I mean, it's just been like, a wonderfully wild ride because it's, you know, surpassed all of our expectations and we're thrilled. But yeah, so that was sort of the journey of, of Agnes. And it was, you know, we worked on that film for four years in pandemic times. I edited in my apartment, Chase was in his apartment. We sort of did it all by zoom for the most part. And um, yeah, I'm really proud of it. I'm thrilled with the response that it's receiving. And for those that don't know um, about the film Framing Agnes, can you just give us brief synopsis of it and where we can see it now? Yeah, at the moment, actually, I believe it's going to be released on Canopy shortly. I think I think it might even be February 14th, although don't hold me to that date. I think it might be Valentine's Day. Um, but the film, as I said, it's, it's a hybrid and we have this cast of trans actors. And um, basically, the director, Chase, uncovered these transcripts from the first gender clinic uh, at UCLA in the mid-century transcripts that had been buried for 70 years. And so he found all of these untold stories 
um, you know, from these trans people who had come and shared their experience. And then he, you know, cast the film with these different trans actors to bring that history to life. And also, as I said, to reflect on their own experiences, because we're in a very specific moment. Um, and so really sort of taking like, what does it mean? Who gets to be in an archive? Who gets hidden away? What is an archive? And then how do we deal with that archive? How do we relate to that archive? What material makes it into that archive and what's left out? Um, so the film really explores, you know, it's, it's sort of more than just the, these particular strand, trans stories. It's really just about like what it means to be collecting this information, who the scientist is that, you know, gets to have these conversations and decides who's in and who's out and that kind of thing. And then as far as the casting for the film, how long did that take? And was that a difficult process? Uh, a handful of the people that were in the feature were also in the short. So they had been in this journey with us for oh, so quite a long the time short. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we expanded it into a feature, we um, you know, got a few more actors on board. And that's, you know, Chase is, is brilliant in a lot of ways, but, you know, he's very forward thinking. And, so, and he's very, he's a trans person as well. And he's very sort of involved in that community. And um, at least the collection of trans people that we have in that film, they process the world sort of through theory in some ways. They could just as easily have been academics or historians. They're actors, but they, the way that they speak about the world is really through a lens that's really unique and brilliant. And so it was just a pleasure to be able to have that kind of footage to edit and, you know, really sort of try to tell these stories and also to try to infuse, you know, some potentially like cerebral ideas with a, with a feeling in your body of, you know, where does this land and just the emotion of storytelling. So it's a real challenge in trying to sort of like create an emotional experience um, and present a lot of cerebral ideas. Well, you edited in a way that just definitely captured all of that. What was your editing process like? How long did it take you? Because that seems like it was just a huge journey in itself. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. I'm so proud of the editing of that film because it's, uh, like I said, it's like trans and structure. We didn't have a template or, you know, it's, it's a lot of experimentation and really seeing what works. And it took me four years to edit that film. And I like to say it took me four years, but it really took me 40 years because I really had to deconstruct everything I knew about storytelling and kind of reassemble it in a way that works for that particular film. So it was a real challenge. Um, and, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm thrilled and I never expected it to get the reception that it's getting, but I, I couldn't be happier about it. And I hope it keeps going. I hope people really uh, take something from it. I think they will. You know, one thing for me, I see a lot of films and I was just thinking, you know, in watching it, the editing process of that and how you extracted that emotion, because filmmaking is really you're telling a story three different times, you know, from the writing to the shooting and then the editing part of it. So I really appreciated that. And I could really see that it took a lot of time. Uh, Switching gears to your latest comedy short, Grandma Bruce, I enjoyed the film and I thought it was just a very fun and interesting way to explore some of the societal issues that people who identify as they, them struggle with. And so if you could please just talk to us a little bit about the writing process for that, how you came up with such a unique idea. And then again, I want to explore your editing with it. Oh, awesome. Well, uh, Grandma Bruce is is a short magical comedy and it's about Brooke, who is a queerdo like me, goes by they, them. 
and um, their uh, car, their old car comes to life with the spirit of their judgmental Jewish grandmother, who is a backseat driver from the ever after. And I like to say it's based on a true story because it kind of is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I thought like- so. I was like, this backseat driver is just a little bit too real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I drove my grandma's um, Lexus for, I don't, I mean, for so many years and I was just so attached to it because it was hers. I was super close to my grandma. And, you know, when it kind of came time to let go of that car, I really struggled with it because I loved it so much even though that was like never a car that anyone would have ever imagined me stepping out of. It's sort of like a tan Lexus sedan that looks like, you know, someone in her 60s or 70s is driving it, not me, a gender queer, you know, like it was a gender queer artist or whatever. So there was something uh, just really fun about, you know, trying to, you know, the, the, the film is really about these, you know, cultural scripts or ideas that our, our parents or our grandparents have for us in terms of what our life is supposed to look like what the rules are that we're supposed to follow. And, and this short is really about um, the Brooke character setting some boundaries with their grandma and choosing the life that calls to them, not because it's scripted by, you know, their old Jewish grandmother. So there's like a lot of heart in it in the sense that like, it really is, you know, this, this is a journey that I've had to go on in my life, you know, as a, as, an, as someone who has a little identifies as, you know, some neurotic Jewish roots kind of thing. And so this was just an opportunity for me to kind of really acknowledge, um, like my own lineage and, uh, you know, claim my own destiny. And I did that within this short film. It was brilliant. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, it really reminded me of is that part of the problem is that we have these societal norms and we have to learn to love people for who they are and not who we think they should be. And I know there was this, you know, hard conversation in that car when the main character turned around and said, I love you, but you are wrong. This is who I am. This is who I'm meant to be. And I can't follow your norm. And it was just really a great moment in the film. And thank you for that. Just talking a little bit more about the film. Where did you get those incredible actors from? Uh so lucky. Uh, you know, I, the, the actor who played Brooke, I actually just found on a casting website in the very beginning, I had sort of played with the idea of playing that role myself. I'm not an actor. So that would have been its own challenge. And I decided I really wanted to play the role of director and it would have been just too hard for me to do it. Um, and so I saw a bunch of different people in that role and it was really exciting in the sense that like I, I saw actors who were sort of all along the spectrum of how they expressed with their own gender identity. So it was interesting to sort of like audition an actor who's more trans mask and audition an actor who's more gender. And it was just sort of like seeing different versions of myself, you know, and thankfully, I mean, from the people that we auditioned, everyone was really excellent. And so it was sort of like figuring out for this particular story, where does Brooke identify? Where is Brooke's own gender identity in this broad spectrum. I was really excited to find um, the actor, Laura Torinos. She's actually Jewish. And so I really, really think that that kind of in some ways showed like you could feel both the actors are Jewish. And I would never have thought some of the actors that I had auditioned were like, are you casting specifically Jewish because I'm not Jewish? And it had never occurred to me to be like, oh, yes, I'm only casting Jewish. That was never my intention. But then when we did the chemistry reads, there was just something that was really, really alive in both of these Jewish actors, because there is, I mean, we have like some 
lived <laughs> experience in our bodies of these kinds of like cultural norms, as you said. And, you know, there is something very specific about the expectations of a Jewish grandmother to marry a doctor, you know, like whatever that might be. And, th- and that kind of read in the performances, but in an unspoken way. And then um, Monica Piper, who played the grandma. So she used to write on the original Roseanne. She used to write on Rugrats. She is so funny. And um, I found her through someone, someone connected me to her. And it was just such a pleasure to work with both of these actors because, you know, we would, we would rehearse and, uh, you know, Monica, especially she's like, she's a writer. She just had all kinds of suggestions. And often I was like, yes, that's funnier than the line we've got go with that. And so it was just really, it felt really alive. And I mean, that's just like the biggest gift. Did she also voice part of Rugrats? Because when I was listening to her, she sounded like, you know, Rugrats like goes just way, way back for me. But she sounded like the Angelica in Rugrats. Oh, my God. That's so funny. I don't think so. You'll have to ask. If you could ask her, I I would really be wondering because she really sounded like a couple of the characters in Rugrats. That is so funny. Yeah. But they were just a pleasure to work with. I mean, I don't know that I've had so much fun and also just because it's comedy. And so it was just great to just like create a safe space where you can play. And we really did that, especially in the rehearsals and you know, the, the shoot itself was pretty stressful because the entire shoot takes place in a moving car, which is like not that fun as a shooting experience. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of logistics and safety and all of this stuff. And so it was wonderful that we had created sort of this base of play in our rehearsals. And then when we were on set, it was very easy for them to just sort of find their way into it. And it was, I mean, the performances were the greatest pleasure of the film for me. I just, I loved everything they brought to it. Where was the film shot? Silver Lake right outside my apartment. I mean, we, yeah, we just sort of circled the blocks around my apartment. I maybe bothered my neighbors with all the cast, you know, with the crew kind of, you know, and all the equipment in my courtyard and whatnot, but it worked out. Yeah. That one scene where they were going up a hill. I'm like, I think I recognize that hill. So many hills. (laughs) I'm I'm not too far from Silver Lake myself. And for all my indie filmmakers out there, how did you raise the budget for the film? Well, with Grandma Bruce, it was actually, I mean, to be really honest, any filmmaker knows how challenging it is to raise money for anything and how challenging it is to actually just get anything made. You know, and I've gone the route of crowdfunding. I've gone the route of kind of done everything in order to get films made. For this particular film, it was really important for me to be able to self-fund it. Like I actually didn't want to ask anyone else for money. I didn't want to have that hanging over me. So I saved up for it and I did it all myself. And, um, you know, of course it ended up being way more expensive than I ever anticipated. And I flirted with the idea later in the process of like, oh, should I go into Kickstarter? Should I, you know, ask for funds? But again, it's, it was just an energetic thing around this particular film. This isn't my, I can't afford to fund all my own films, but you know, for a small short film, it was possible. And like, there was just something about it. I really wanted to take care of myself in this way for this one it can never happen again because this film is way too expensive and it, you know, kind of exhausted all my personal resources, but it was like a calling. I kind of had to do it. So I did. How many shooting days were there? Three. Well, actually that's not true. We had three shooting days and then we had one pickup day, um, like a month later or so. So four days total. And it was, you know, thankfully, like it was a lot of, as much as I hate having to do it, it was also part of the process of just calling in, asking for favors from friends. Um, You know, I went to film school at Columbia. So many of the people in my network at Columbia have moved to LA. And many of us are in this position of, you know, real frustration of trying to get our stuff made. And there's 
a bajillion gatekeepers that say no at every turn. And, uh, you know, I was so lucky in this instance because I have so many friends who really also, first of all, can relate to my uh, intense desire to make something. And second of all, you know, we have that foundation of like, you know, I've set, sat on sets in the rain holding umbrellas over lights for them 15, 20 years ago, whatever. And so, well, 15 years, but I don't need to age myself more than I am. And then, um, you know, and so like they were just really excited to be able to help. And like that continues because, you know, one of my friends who was on the set um, just told me he's making a film and I'm just like thrilled to be able to help him. It's like such an exciting thing when you can actually see your friends create things and, you know, actually get to get to make them because it's just so challenging. There are so many obstacles. Everything's so expensive. So I don't know when I see a friend making that leap, I'm like, yes, count me in. I'm there. What can I do? And thankfully, I had a lot of people in my camp who were willing to do that for me too. And I am forever grateful. It's like such a gift. And what's next for you as a filmmaker? Are you working on any projects right now? Um, like a million. So yeah, I, I, I write a lot. So I, I'm writing a few different things. We'll see, you know, what happens. I'm working on a pilot um, that I'm very excited about. But like I said, there's just like, you know, now I am about to turn 42. I have like an awareness of how this industry works and how challenging it is. So it's like, I'm, I'm writing a pilot right now that I will begin to pitch and, you know, hoping beyond hope that we actually get to make it. But I also write short stories. I write other kinds of things. And the thing that I'm, to be honest, most excited about in this moment is something so different from anything I've ever done before, um, which is a series that we've just started pitching. It's called I Changed My Mind. And um, I'm the creator and host. And uh, basically, every episode is me sitting down with someone who has changed their mind about something in their lives that led to a larger paradigm shift. So we've already uh, shot three interviews and we've edited those. The first one is with Dolores Huerta, who is, you know, one of the most influential labor activists of the 20th century. And I got to talk to her about how she changed her mind and became pro-choice after meeting and talking to Gloria Steinem. And then um, I chatted with Sridhar Ramaswamy. He used to be the vice president of Google's advertising business, like $100 billion company. And he helped develop um, the ad-supported free search model and then changed his mind about it, started his own search engine um, where the results like aren't dependent on ad revenue. And then the last one I did was with someone I found on TikTok. Her name is Jana. And um, she has a trans son who she rejected and refused to use his proper pronouns and even called his high school and demanded that they do the same um, and then changed her mind about accepting her trans son when he attempted suicide. And so now she tries to talk to other parents who are struggling to love and accept their trans kids before they arrive at that point. Um, so every episode really just like explores what it means to change your mind. I mean, I think in this particular moment in time, we're living in this moment that's just so polarized and people are really like digging it, their heels in with opinions. We don't get to celebrate these stories of people just actually saying like, well, I used to believe this thing. Then I received or I saw or I found this new information and then I changed my mind. And so really just kind of normalizing what it looks like for someone to actually say, I changed my mind about that. I used to believe one thing and now I believe something else and I'm still here, you know? And so that's that. And that's just been really exciting because I've never posted anything before. And also, I mean, it's just so thrilling to find these stories and have these kinds of conversations. Like it gives me so much hope in the world of what's possible. 
Um, so we're just starting to pitch that. I'm really, you know, crossing my fingers that it finds the right home. I really love that title. And it's so hard for people to change their mind and admit that they were wrong. And sometimes people just act like, oh, this is how I was the whole time. So that's such an interesting concept. Now, are you pitching this as a film or is it a podcast? What do you see it being? Well, uh, as of right now, the version is that it would be a 10 to 12 minute video series. Um, And I'm working with a production company called Second Peninsula. And we've created these first three episodes sort of as a a pilot. So you can kind of get a sense of the wide array of types of, you know, characters and, and participants that I'd be chatting with. Um, but there's different versions. I mean, if it finds the right home, we'll sort of see what that looks like. And uh, I definitely see an accompanying podcast because the conversations that I'm having, you know, with these three guests, they're, they're like an hour long conversation that I'm then cutting down to 10 to 12 minutes. There's so much on the cutting room floor that's really, you know, just fantastic. And I think there's a lot of value in hearing it as a podcast, but there's also a lot of value in it being a video series where you get to really sort of, you know, with Dolores Huerta, we're getting to see the footage of her as this powerful activist with Cesar Chavez or with Obama, you know, it's just like, there's a lot of value in actually getting to see the photographs of like this history and this life live or with Jana, the one who rejected her trans son. I mean, just having an opportunity to see photographs and to see um, even just their interaction together. So there's a lot of value in being able to see it, but you know, a video series means that it's much shorter than a podcast can be. Also, there's a lot more work that goes into producing it. So in an ideal world, it would be, it would be both. The podcast would accompany the video series. Well, Brooke, thank you so much for joining us today. And I wish you continued success with all of your projects. I am especially looking forward to I Change My Mind. Wherever it finds a home, I want to support it. And whatever other projects are next, I'm really excited for it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a pleasure. Alliance of Women Filmmakers is proud to partner with Women Voices Now to present this podcast. Women Voices Now uses film to drive positive social change that advances girls' and women's rights globally. For more information about Women Voices Now, visit womenvoicesnow.org. To learn more about Alliance of Women Filmmakers, and other organizations that we partner with, please visit lawomensfest.com. Visionary Voices is produced by Diana Means with editing from Otaku Media. Visionary Voices is a production of Alliance of Women Filmmakers and made possible in part by a grant from the Department of Cultural Affairs. Our website, visionaryvoicespodcast.com. Yeah.